It's good to be back in our series this afternoon on the church. We've uh, taken a break the last four weeks, but if you were with us through the month of September, Mark and I preached on uh, a series of messages entitled The Church, and and we've intentionally kind of let that breathe for about four weeks now. And uh, I'm not sure if that's me, my heartbeat again. Uh, As a refresher, we started off the series... Uh, looking at how at the center and of the purpose of the local church is the glory of God. Yes, we want to make disciples. Yes, we want to be a community where people gather together and, and walk out life together. Yes, we want to be a place and a people where people can explore who Jesus is. But before all of that, we trace back to the origin that it all goes back to the glory of God. That from the day of the fall in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that uh, God since that day has been about the task of redeeming a people for himself from every language, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. I'm about to switch microphones if if it continues. Andrew, I don't know if I can preach through with all the tablets. So um, I may just go ahead and do that now if that's all right before we get too far into this. need to be able to think about uh, and not about talking. So because of that, be- because of God's great mercy, Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and he stepped into this broken world to to walk a course through life towards the cross so that he could purchase our sin, so he could bear the punishment, the weight of the wrath of God for uh, for us on our behalf so that we can be made right with God, all for the glory of God, to make much of the glory of God. So if you remember back to that very first week, we, we said there was, we, we had a statement that summarized it all. We said that Jesus didn't just save us from something. We aren't just saved from something, but we're saved to something, not just from our sin, but to now live in such a way that we live life together as part of the local church. Yes, God has saved us from our sin, but we, he saved us. He brought us into family together so that we can pursue the making much of the glory of God together as one people together. That none of us could ever fully live that out on our own in isolation, but we need the body of Christ to be able to be all that God has called us to be. So we're, we're picking things back up today uh, by looking at a crucial part in, in this series, and that's the leadership of of the church. And I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me this afternoon. And before we read our passage, let me start by reiterating that even in this subject, the leadership of the church, it's all about the glory of God. That at the heart of every single sermon we preach in this series, the glory of the God is the hub at the center of that wheel of all that we're talking about. So the main thought of this afternoon that undergirds everything is this. The church's mission to make much of the glory of God by reflecting Christ's character starts with those who lead. The church's mission of making much of the glory of God by reflecting the character of Christ starts with those who lead. The Christian life is about pursuing making much of the glory of God. And you and I do that by becoming more and more 
like Christ. His character, his attitudes, his actions, his behaviors, the way that he acted towards other people. And as we pursue Christ, he makes us and he molds us more and more into his likeness. And in his wisdom and his grace, the Lord has placed within the fabric of the culture of the local church a picture of some of his character. He's given us two leadership positions, elders and deacons, two offices, if you will, of leadership. And the main purpose of these two positions is to help us to grow in the reflection of the character of Christ. We, we jump to strategy often. We jump to, to ministry purposes and ministry actions when we think of leadership, when we think of pastors and deacons. But the purpose of the leadership of the church is about helping the church be who the church is meant to be so that we can then do what the church is meant to, to do. Therefore, reflecting and imaging the character of Christ is the reason we see these two leadership positions within the church. So we're going to unpack all of that. Hopefully that's giving you some time to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's read this uh, together this afternoon. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read down to verse 13. It says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy, he must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove themselves blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently, for those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. The church's mission to make much of the glory of God by reflecting the character of Christ starts with leadership, those who lead. And as we think about these two leadership positions within the church, we have to go back to how they relate to reflecting the character of Christ. Both of these offices trace back to a distinctive part of the character of Christ. Both of them are meant to not only model how to be more like Christ, but they take the lead in helping the church to grow in this. And, and here's what I mean. This is going to be on the screen behind me. Elders are meant to be servant leaders, if you will modeling the character of Jesus for the church, and then teaching the church how to live that character out, as opposed to deacons who are meant to be leading servants. Uh, deacons also, they model the character of Christ for the church, and then they take the lead in serving. 
We're going to take these one at a time. Let's start with elders. If you've not been around the church much or you spent time being a part of a church who uses this kind of nomenclature and language, this may be an odd term for you, elder. Why would you call the term elder? But we use that term because the Bible uses this term. It actually uses a few different words. Uh, when when the original writers wrote in Greek, there's, there's a few different Greek words, and, and we translate them as elder, pastor or shepherd, and overseer, like we just read there. And as you read through the New Testament, you encounter a few places where these different words are used, like Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. There Paul uses the Greek word poimen, which is literally translated to the English word shepherd. But almost every single translation in English that we have, for the sake of cultural context, translates that word shepherd to pastor. If you look at Titus 1, we just read from Paul's letter to Timothy in our main passage. And Timothy is serving in Ephesus, and Paul has sent him there to, in the very first chapter, it says to set right the things that need to be set right. And he sent Titus to Crete to, to serve the church in Crete to, for very similar purpose. And this is what Paul writes to Titus. It's very, very similar as he talks about the same role. In, in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, he says, An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money. So you see there that it, they're very, very similar. In Titus, Paul uses the word overseer, and this word means exactly like it sounds, that this is a man called by God to literally keep an eye on the flock of God, the church, the body of Christ, to, to provide personalized, firsthand care and protection. And each of these terms and their titles, they're, they're interchangeable. And the way we know that is from what we read in Acts chapter 20. And Paul had served for a while in Ephesus, the Ephesian church. He saw that church come about into prominence and grow. He, he left and spent many years away doing ministry and other things. And now he's on his way and it, to Jerusalem, but really he knows he's headed to, to prison and, and to know who knows what else. So he is stopping by to say goodbye one last time to these Ephesian elders. And this is what he says in verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. So they come out to meet him, and in verse 28 it says he's talking to them, and he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There we see each of these words and their roles together in the same couple of verses. And that tells us that they're interchangeable. Even the way he used them, they're, they're interchangeable. And, and by the way, when you encounter these terms in the scripture, they occur in the plural form. With one exception, and that's in our passage of 1 Timothy 3, where he's talking about the qualifications. An elder must be this. And, but in every time, even there, it's meant to be one of many. That, that this is meant to be in the plural. I wish we had time to keep mining all of that. We, we can come back to that at another point or talk about it in missional communities. I'll move on by saying that at the heart of all of this 
An elder or a pastor or a shepherd or an overseer is to shepherd the church and being more like Christ. And they do this by living out a Christ-like life that we are all called to live. All of us are. All of this is because of how this role reflects the character of Christ as our good shepherd. In John 10, Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd, in verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and, and doesn't own the sheep, he leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Christ is our good shepherd. As we look at those who are to be those servant leaders, those elders of the church, this is the picture we see of how they carry this out. The shepherds of the church, the, the servant leaders in submission to Christ continually point away from themselves and they point towards Christ, humbly pointing to the good shepherd, the true good shepherd. Jesus is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And in picturing this, the elders of the church, they lay their lives down for the church by humbly sacrificing and working, working for the good of those that they lead. Our good shepherd Jesus, he stays with the flock, even in the face of danger. He doesn't run from trouble. He doesn't run from threats. And, and reflecting this, the elders of the church decisively stand firm in the face of threats, in the face of opposition to the church. In fact, in Acts 20, in that same passage we just talked about a second ago, in 28 to 30, Paul tells the Ephesian elders to be on guard against false doctrine, false teachers, that savage wolves would come in and try to destroy the church. In the face of this, elders don't run and they don't quit. They don't cower in fear. They don't give in to a fear of man that just so easily wants to grip all of our hearts. But they continually stir up a holy fear of God continually stirring up an awe of God. And this is another reason that we see that this office is in the plural form in Scripture because elders need to not be one person. They need to be able to stand together in this task to rely on one another. In verse 14, Jesus says that his sheep know him and he knows his own. Elders spend time investing in such a way that they know the people within the church. They know the families within the church, the struggles that families have and walk through they, the singles in the church, the struggles that singles have within the family of faith. And, and elders are willing to be known by the church, not just to know the church. It's not one-sided. They're willing to be known. Elders are not separate from the church, but they're part of it. Paul's command to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28 is most literally translated as this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers, among which. Elders are part of the church, living life among the church. They don't run from being known. They don't isolate themselves from the rest of the body. Instead, they're honest and they're transparent about the things they're going through, the struggles they have, how God is stretching them and growing them, and they're forthcoming about the things going on in their lives. Okay. With that as our picture now, as the good shepherd and, and being a shepherd, we go back and we'll clearly see those qualifications, how they come into view. And, and they're not just a checklist, but they're indicators of whether or not men are working toward being an accurate picture of Christ's character. 
And as you read through these lists of qualifications, I find it interesting that they are all of them basically what we're called to as Christians. <laughs> there's, there's not really anything that's, that's lofty that none of us should be aspiring to. It's, it's actually everything that all of us should be aspiring to as followers of Jesus. In fact, D.A. Carson writes this about that thought. The most extraordinary thing about the biblical prerequisites for elders is that they are not all that extraordinary. Elders are those who are called to be examples for the whole church as we together, as a community, pursue being more like Christ. Elders want to take on this joyful burden to lead. Christ willingly and joyfully came to the earth and went to the cross. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, the word tells us. It's a good thing to aspire to this office and want to fill this role. Honestly, in our day, too many men shy away from leadership and, and extra responsibility. They, they don't want the burden of leadership. But Scripture says that this desire is a good thing when it's in line with these other qualifications. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that you should be campaigning for this kind of role with your, your buttons and your signs and, you know, vote me as elder. No, no, no. What I'm saying is that, uh, that this is something that the Spirit of God, when, when He calls upon you and, and separates you from your life, then it is a good thing to then aspire to within the rest of these qualifications. 1 Timothy 3.2 says that they must be above reproach, that in the normal pattern of life, they're not shackled with habitual sin. Uh, it's not an issue of being perfect. We know that no one is perfect but this is talking about long-lasting habitual sin. They're husbands of one wife, or as it's literally, most literally translated, a one-woman man. I love that. Uh, this doesn't mean that these men have to be married uh, they, or that they can't be widowers who've remarried. I mean, after all, Paul was unmarried. He's writing to Timothy, who was most likely unmarried. It, it means that if they are married, that they are devoted to their wives. They are faithful physically, emotionally, and mentally to their wives. They don't pursue other women physically, emotionally, or in their thought life. Christ has proven himself faithful to his bride, and so should the elders of the local church. Verse 2 goes on to say that elders are to be self-controlled, sensible, level-headed, in other words, uh, that they're to be respectable, all of that paints the picture of the one who is balanced in their life. It says that they are hospitable, meaning not just willing to offer a meal to others, but with their lives, hospitable, open, an open book, with their energy, with their resources, with their time. Verse 3 says that they must not be prone to excessive drinking and drunkenness. I think that's pretty clear. They must not be greedy for the accumulation of stuff and wealth, which so is easy for us to be prone to and to fall into. Verse 4 tells us they should manage their household well, being a good reflection of our Heavenly Father, who is good, who brings discipline when it's necessary, but also gives us what we need and then just lavishes His grace upon us, not just stopping at the things that we need. R.C. Sproul, writing about this verse, had this to say, Ancient peoples believed that private behavior was indicative of, of effective leadership and, consequently, that a family's conduct determined whether the father would be a skilled leader. Well-behaved kids revealed consistent, caring discipline at home. 
which proved that a man could govern a group larger than his family. How a man leads his family reveals much about how he leads the family of faith, which is what verse 5 is explaining there. Then in verses 6 to 7, we see that last character qualification, and it's maturity. That They should not be a new believer, but having the opportunity to demonstrate consistency, walking out their faith, and being observable in, in difficult seasons. How do, how do these people, how do these men re- react to difficult cir- circumstances, to suffering, to challenges? How do they react to, to flourishing in good times even? Uh, all of these things point to Christ. This is not about us. This is about Christ. And it includes that, that one action, that task-oriented qualification that we left out. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but in verse 2, it says they must be able to teach. Elders in the local church are called not just to model the character of Christ, but to teach the rest of the body what the Word of God says about how to do this, how to make much of the glory of God in this world. A primary responsibility is that elders accurately communicate the Word of God to the church so that the church is built up, it's edified. And this means that elders first have to know the Word. In his book entitled Biblical Eldership, it's pretty straightforward. I wonder what that book's about. Biblical Eldership, Alexander Strauch writes this about this very thought. Since the local church is the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3, 15, its leaders must be rock-solid pillars of biblical doctrine or the house will crumble. Since the local church is also a small flock traveling over treacherous terrain that's infested with savage wolves, only those shepherds who know the way and see the wolves can lead the flock to its safe destination. An elder then must be characterized by doctrinal integrity. Now, after working through all of that, let me just acknowledge two big things. Uh, one, there's no doubt in my mind that everyone in this room at least knows about a situation where an elder or a pastoral leader has fallen, or maybe you've experienced that in a local church. Maybe that's been your personal experience. And while I can't change your experience, I I can't do anything to to change the headlines we read, which so frustrate me and break my heart every time I do read about that, what I can do is invite you to help Mark Mark and I to be who God has called us to be. The elders are called to live out this. We're not called to live this out separately from the rest of the church but as an integrated part of the rest of the body. The invitation is there for you to walk alongside us as we pursue Christ. And there's a couple of ways that you can do that really practically. One, you can join us in reading through the Bible. Every year we set out to read the Bible in a year, the whole Bible in a year. And um, we strive to do that each year and to be consistent in doing that. We uh, talked about our Christmas graphic and all the Christmas things coming up. It's not going to be long before we're talking about reading plans for 2024. I invite you now in November to get on board with that. Read with us. Uh, Read the Bible in a year with us. Do a reading plan with us. And then be faithful to talk about it with us. Ask us what we're reading. Ask us what we're learning. Ask us how we're growing. How's the Lord challenging you? What are the insights you're getting? But just be prepared that if you ask us, we're going to ask you in return, what are you reading? Tell me about what you're learning. What's God showing you in the word? Uh, And it's a good, that's a really good thing. Second, pray with us. There's ample opportunity throughout the week and each month for you to spend time praying with us. We're here on Tuesday evenings. Come, that has been such a rich 
thing the last few weeks. We've resumed the, the Tuesday night prayer time. So powerful. Come join us on Tuesday nights. Join us Friday mornings for prayer. We're there at 7. You can do it. 7 o'clock It's not that early. One day a week, you can do it, I promise. My coffee is probably involved in it, too. So, uh, If you will take a vested interest in what we're reading, what we're learning, as well as the things that we're praying for, that helps us to be better shepherds for you. Be part of our communal walking out of our faith amongst the body of Christ. The second, that's the first big thing. The second big thing I want to acknowledge today is that up to this point, I have only used male pronouns. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but I've only used male pronouns in talking about this pastoral leadership role. And that's because in the scriptures, we see that this reserve, this role is reserved for qualified men. Not just any man, but qualified men. And we would in love unapologetically hold to this. Uh, and that's not because it's our personal preference or just the way we want to operate we actually would see that in scripture. It's not because we want to subjugate women and take away any kind of power from women. No, we hold that this is God's pattern for his body because that's what we see in scripture, that God has made us to have complementary yet distinct roles within the life of the church. And since it's God's plan and pattern, then that's a really good thing when we live within it. It's a beautiful thing for us to work out. We have other sermons on this subject where, on the website where we go into far more detail. A good place to start is Mark's sermon entitled The Power of Example, Complementarity. I love that word, complementarity. And uh, that's from 1 Corinthians 10, 2 to 16. And he preached that on 28 February, 2021. I invite you to go back and listen to our biblical reasoning for why we see this as a good thing. I'll move on to the other leadership office by saying this, that elders are meant to live the way that we're all called to live. We're all called to live this way. We're all meant to pursue growing in Christ-likeness. By God's design, he appoints flawed, broken people to lead the way in doing that. So let's move on and look at the other office that, we've, that we saw there in 1 Timothy 3, deacons. The church's mission to make much of the glory of God by reflecting the character of Christ starts with those who lead. As I already said, deacons are meant to be leading serpents within the church. And, and we find the place where they, uh, they first appear in the local church in Acts chapter 6. The crisis happens in, in the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 6. Let's read this together to see what I mean. Starting in verse 1, it says, And in, in those days, as, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So you have this accusation that comes about that one amongst the, the two primary ethnicities within the church, one is getting preference getting preferential treatment, that their widows are, are being given more food or given more attention than, than this other group. And so naturally you have tension within the church, friction within the church. And here's how the church responds. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables, even though waiting on tables in this instance is a really good thing and is what's needed. Verse 3, they say, Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, not because waiting tables was a bad thing. It was necessary in this moment. 
But what was the thing that the pastoral leadership was meant to do and what else was needed to be done? Here we see that this role of leadership was initiated in a moment where the local church needed leading servants who could lead the way in taking care of the body. In fact, the word we use, deacon, it comes from that actual sentence the disciples use, the 12 used there for waiting tables, serving tables. Uh, it comes from the, the Greek word diakoneo, uh, which literally means to serve. And it carries with it the implication of caring for the needs of others as the word guides in an active, practical way. The word is used more than a hundred times in the New Testament. And almost every single time, it, it refers to a ministry of service. Now, I understand in, in the room with this many people in our cultural context that the idea of serving tables or practically serving the body is not always the way deacons have functioned in your church experience previously, potentially. Uh, however, if we honestly read the scriptures, that's the way we see them function in the scriptures, in the church. They do not exercise leadership in a decision-making capacity. In their capacity as deacons, they're not teachers. Uh, these are people within the life of the church who lead the way in serving the body. And that's because the role of deacon is meant to be another way that the character of Christ is pictured, is a picture, is a reflection in the fabric of the life of the church. Jesus epitomized what it means to be a servant. We see that in Philippians 2, a passage that we read frequently on Sundays. Whether it's our uh, invitation to worship, our prayer times, our worship times, our sermons, we, we frequently make uh, reference to this passage. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, it says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, is existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. This passage paints the picture for us of, of how Jesus emptied himself and he became a servant. As a servant, Jesus deferred to the Father's will. He submitted humbly and willingly and without complaint. Deacons serve willingly and humbly. Jesus valued the glorification of the Godhead above his own temporary comfort and safety in this life. One of the clearest examples that we have of that is what we really have already talked about tonight with the table. And in Matthew 26, the gospel writer writes about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 39 of that chapter says, Going a little further, he felt, Jesus fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now we like to jump to the next sentence. We frequently pass over that statement. Father, Lord, let this be done. I don't want to do this. Let this cup pass from me. This cup that your prophets have been talking about throughout history. This cup of wrath that's been coming, of judgment that's been coming. I don't want that. In his human nature, Jesus absolutely did not want what was waiting for him bearing the wrath of God upon himself to take the punishment for our sin. But 
And he followed up that statement with, yet not as I will, but as you will. Fulfilling this role of servant is about imaging this reality, leading the way in serving so that you can see a visible picture of putting the interests of others above yourself, the interests of God's glory ahead of our own temporary preferences. Can't underscore enough just how significant this aspect of being a deacon is. And it's not that being a deacon is just anybody who serves. No, we're all called to serve within the life of the church. Instead, deacons actually lead the way in serving the practical, tangible needs of the body. Deacons do this sacrificially, like Jesus sacrificed. Jesus actively lived out an example of all these things without ever complaining. Deacons are meant to image this aspect of Christ's character. And that's why we see the same general character qualifications for deacons as we do for elders. A lot of it is the same. And I recognize that viewing the function of deacons this way may not be your, your, uh, your previous experience. And that could be because we don't have explicit teaching on this is what a deacon does and this is what a deacon does not. No, it's what we have are observations from the scripture that explain all of that. But the thing we do know about their responsibilities based on those observations is that their ministries arise from specific circumstances. It's from specific things. Acts 6 happens, trauma in the church happens, and these specific needs arise, and that's when deacons are appointed. In his commentary on this subject, Danny Aiken says this, A specific need necessitated these leading servants. The fact that different needs call for different types of leaders may help explain why we don't see clear responsibilities for deacons spelled out in the New Testament. Deacons lead the church in serving and meeting specific needs within the church. From what we see in Scripture, this isn't a generic role for the purpose to help the church simply, vaguely serve better. Uh, as you read through Acts 6, we, we looked at that, and we saw how the, the primary reason for this office is so that elders can be devoted to leading the church and teaching the word and in prayer. Not only that, but deacons support the role of the elders by bringing unity to the church. They unify the church. They help in, in that area. In Acts 6, there was division within the body. Crisis moment where you have two factions of the church. The church easily could have split apart in that moment. But God used this office to bring unity to the church so that they were stronger afterwards. In their book, The Deliberate Church, Mark uh, Dever and Paul Alexander say this, Deacons serve to care for the physical and financial needs of the church, and they do so in a way that heals divisions, brings unity under the word, and supports the leadership of the elders. Without this practical service of the deacons, the elders will not be free to devote themselves to praying and serving the word to the people. Elders need deacons to serve practically, and deacons need elders to lead spiritually. So what we need to take away from that is that this is not like a first class and a second class of leadership within the church. These are both primary roles of leadership within the church that are dependent and interdependent upon one another. There is specific purpose behind each of these roles and responsibilities. Let's look at the qualifications briefly as we're kind of wrapping things up. 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives likewise should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. 
Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children in their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So as you can see, these are very similar qualifications to those of elders. And that's because both of these offices lead the way in being the example of Christ's character to the body. That's their primary function. And because every single one of these character qualifications is meant to be lived out by every single person within the church, this is a picture of us, a living, visible picture of what we're all meant to be doing. Deacons lead primarily in modeling and exemplifying Christ's character to the body. Both of these roles are crucial for being that living picture. So maybe you noticed a couple of things that are different, though, from these qualifications as the other. One is that what we've already discussed, that there's nothing said about teaching here. And as we said again, this, this is not a teaching role within the church. The other big difference is that there's a section added about wives here that was not in the, the elders section, which is interesting. So as you read through this, here are a couple of options you could, you could take in understanding this passage and that section of the passage. One, that this is addressing the wives of deacons. Or within the passage of qualifications, this section is specifically speaking to eligible women who serve in this role as deacon. And I know that even within our church, there's probably some disagreement on how, what we would think about female deacons. Um, Mark and I would both be in agreement that when we read the word, we see prohibition on women being elders, but not on deacons. Uh, as I read this, I can't help but understand that this is addressing women who serve in that role of deacon or deaconess. Uh, for one thing, there's nothing addressing the wives of elders in the section before, whereas you have this section addressing women here. Um, secondly, Paul addresses Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, and he attributes her with this same kind of role of deaconess. So you have an actual example in the scriptures of where that happens. Third, you see Paul explicitly speak against women leading through the preaching in the large gathering of the church, but not in leading in service, not leading in, in serving. Paul never says that women can't lead within the church. He simply provides parameters for how this is played out in the church. There's a whole lot more we could say, but, but I'll, I'll leave it at this. At DBC, we would hold to the role of deacon, lead servants within the local church, being open to both qualified men and qualified women. Um, up to this point in the life of our church, at least since the replant in 2016, we've not had any officially recognized deacons or deaconesses. Uh, however, we've had several who've naturally filled that role in one way or another. In, in a timely fashion, they have fulfilled that role of leading servant. Um, and it's, uh, this is something we're going to be diving into more in the days ahead and the months ahead as we talk about what would it look like for us to formalize that role and, and actually put forth some people to, to fulfill that role in some ways. The church's mission is to make much of the glory of God by reflecting Christ's character. And that starts with those who lead. The main point of all of this, because you get to the, all of this, and, and maybe you're thinking, that is all great content, and I'm so glad we had this Bible study time, but how in the world does that affect my life on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, it affects it this way, that the main point of all of this is Christ. It's not us. It's not the church having good order. <laughs> those are good things, and God does want those things. The root purpose of all of this is the glory of God. It is glorious that a holy God would demonstrate so much mercy to those, to us, who are broken, 
who have only ever continually rebelled against him. But that's who God is. That's who Jesus is. He is a shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one. He is a suffering servant who willingly lays down his life for those who are not worthy of that sacrifice. And that's our application today. As simple as it is, Jesus loves you. He loves you. Do you know that today? Christ loves you. Yes, leadership roles have implications for the direction of the church and how things operate. But the flashing neon sign in front of us today isn't leadership, leadership, leadership. No, it's that God in his grace loves us and has, a made, has made a way for us to have within the fabric of the culture of the church, embedded within it, living pictures of his character to say this is who Christ is. Don't forget that he's your good shepherd. Don't forget that he is a servant. Be like him. Be like him to the glory of God. It's that God in his grace loves you, and he's made a way for you to have a relationship with him and then to know how to walk out that relationship with him. Maybe you're here this evening. Maybe you're watching online, and you've never actually trusted in Jesus that you've never staked your life on the truth, that, that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God, the only way to have true peace and purpose and true joy. And if that's you, the message is really simple this evening, that every single one of us is broken beyond human repair. The perfect standard of God's justice demands that all of my rebellion and all of your rebellion, which the Bible calls sin, that it be taken into account. It the perfect justice of God demands the penalty, the payment of the penalty. Someone has to pay the penalty for my rebellion and for your rebellion. But in his mercy and in his grace, God sent Jesus to live a perfect life so that he could take that penalty for us. He went to the cross and he did that. And if today, if you will trust that, you will believe that and bank your whole life upon that, you can be made right with God. That's the message of truth. If that's where you are and you feel God just burning your heart to be made right with him, we come talk to us during the, the response time. Get in touch with us. We would love to talk more. Church, Jesus loves you so much. He made the ultimate sacrifice to prove that to you. Not only that, but he didn't just leave us to figure it out on our own, all on our own. He actually has given us a pattern of leadership that reflects who he is and what we're supposed to be like. So here's our challenge as we close this, this afternoon. We as elders strive toward being a good picture of Jesus in our daily lives. But here's the deal. We're not perfect. We are flawed and broken. We will offend you. We're going to let you down. We will not always meet your expectations uh, and that's because like you we are flawed and broken people <laughs> uh, in his book on gospel leadership robert thune had this to say about that very thing our hope is not in our excellent servant leadership our hope is in jesus perfect servanthood toward those who acknowledge their lack and their need so in those moments just as christ has called us to be a picture of his character to you be a picture of his character to us are you striving toward that in your daily life? Be courageous enough to, to lovingly, humbly point out when you see something in us that we're not accurately portraying Christ. 
lovingly and graciously point out our blind spots. We, we welcome that. In gentleness and in love, talk to us about any offense or misunderstandings. Please pray for us. Pursue investing in us like we work to pursue investing in you. And commit our commitment to you is that we want to pursue Christ wholeheartedly. So will you do the same with us and alongside us? Think highly of us as we strive to think the best of you. If there are things or ways or, or things that we do that, that, that don't make sense to you or confuse you or frustrate you, first choose to believe the best about us. Seek the Lord in prayer and then sit down with us and talk. Have a conversation because we are not infallible. <laughs> um, but trust that we have given a lot of prayer and care to the things that we're, we're advocating for. So as we, as we seek to shepherd today, we, we seek to be uh, the image of Christ, a picture of that. More than recognition or fame or popularity, our deepest desire is to make much of the glory of God. And that's because the goal of making much of Jesus is worth it. He is worth all of us living this way to submit to him in his way. So are you reflecting the character of Christ in your own life? You know, we often think of Christ in his, the human form. We read these stories about Jesus and we think of a man walking the earth. And, and we can so easily forget that, yes, while that is true, what's also true is like what we see in Ezekiel's prophecies that we've been reading through the last couple of weeks of the one who's unimaginably holy, where when people encounter his glory, they fall down like dead men. Peter, James, and John are on the mountain transfiguration, and Jesus reveals a little bit of his glory to them, and they fall down as if they're dead. Isaiah, before the throne, falls down as if he's dead. John, who's beheld the glory of God once before in the revelation, falls down as a dead man. Talking about the eternal one, the one who created everything, that nothing has come into being that has come into being apart from Christ. That one is who we're talking about. Are you pursuing his character and reflecting his character? Are there people that you struggle to do that with? I encourage you just to give that to the Lord if that's the case tonight, that Christ is our good shepherd and he is the ultimate servant. Let's follow his lead. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are so good and faithful and true to us. Thank you that you give us uh, a way to know how to walk out this life, that you even embed pictures of your character within the fabric of the culture of the church. Help us to be faithful in pursuing you, making much of you, and leading like you've called us to lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.